This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore, welcome Thomas L. Murray Jr. to a podcast episode about his book, Making Nice with Naughty, an intimacy guide for the rule-following, organized, perfectionist, practical, and color-within-the-line types. Murray is a forensic sexologist, sex therapy supervisor, educator, and author. He attended Bloomsburg University of Pennsylvania, and obtained his PhD from the University of Florida. Dr. Murray's passion is in sex, couple, and family counseling, and focuses now primarily on clinical studies of sexuality in humans. Before that, he was in public education. Dr. Murray, give your audience a better picture of your shift towards sex therapy and what else about your background makes you the right person to get advice from. Well, thank you for having me on your show. It's really a, an honor. Uh, I started out in um, higher education uh, in student affairs, uh, working as a um, counseling center director at a major performing arts conservatory here in North Carolina. But a dream of mine was to uh, really delve into sex therapy. I was one of those kids that often people would talk to about their sex lives. Uh, now, in retrospect, pretty inappropriately, but uh, uh, it was a, a kind of a, a moth to a flame um, with people uh, talking to me about their sex life. And so I had this dream of, of eventually pursuing sex therapy as a, as a training. And uh, in 2015, uh, I became certified as a sex therapist uh, through the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, which is the com- premier body of, um, for credentialing sexual health professionals. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I, what I say, you know, not, I get this question of kind of what's prepared me most to become the therapist that I am today. And I uh, often say because I had 18 years of apprenticeship, also known as childhood. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, my family background uh, certainly had an influence. But, you know, many people along the way have uh, added to my uh, understanding of the human condition, which I'm 
quite grateful for. When did you start writing your book, Making Nice with Naughty? And what, if anything, inspired you to take up the topic? I started writing Making Nice with Naughty uh, in the fall of uh, 21. Um, and it was, uh, it's been a lingering um, idea, especially the title. I've, I have had played with that title for some time and, and had thought about different ways of of writing the book. Um, but in 2021, I became a Goldman Sachs 10,000 small business uh, scholar. And uh, through that experience, uh, my business coach really uh, encouraged me to put uh, pen to paper, if you will, and, and start writing Making Nice with Naughty. Um, and so uh, what the topic really shifted to was a reflection of my work with with individuals and couples who are are so rules oriented. Um, they they are so driven uh, to do what's right. Um, they're risk averse, threat sensitive, rejection sensitive. Uh, what we typically call over controlled or having too much self control, which is a, in many ways a virtue. Uh, however. When uh, it does become a problem, it typically shows up in one's sex life and intimate relationships. And so making nice with naughty is really about making nice with this part of you that's a, a, a rule breaker, that's a, a discoverer, that's an experimenter, uh, and uh, reclaiming that kind of curiosity that is, is innate, um, especially among you know, younger people. Uh, and, and, you know, if you can make nice with that naughty part, you, you get to experience a much more fulfilling um, sex life. What is your thesis then in your book, Making Nice with Naughty, and why should we care? A lot of people report, and one of the, the most common complaints that any sex therapist sees, including me, is that uh, people uh, no longer have uh, desire, right? They, they may have uh, lower sexual desire than their partner. And uh, uh, we, we, I have found in my work that for some of these people, uh, that uh, Part of the, the, the low sexual desire is that they uh, have lost that playfulness, um, that spark, that uh, fire of desire. And uh, so making nice with naughty is uh, uh, really offering a, how, a way to understand this over-controlled temperament and its, uh, its virtues, as I mentioned before, but also how it negatively can negatively impact people's uh, sex life. So, you know, these are, this book was written particularly for those people with the over-controlled temperament, uh, or like I said, another way of, of, of referring to it is that too much self-control, where they're very rule-oriented, and uh, helping them to see that there is another way that they can have more aliveness in their relationships and sex life by turning down the volume on that over-controlledness, uh, uh, knowing, though, that they'll never... Uh, be under controlled. Uh, we're kind of biotemperamentally um, 
programmed to be over-controlled if you're over-controlled. And by the way, I, I, as I talk about in the book, I identify as over-controlled as, as uh, does most therapists and particularly anybody who goes to graduate school. You know, being over-controlled is almost a prerequisite to getting through graduate school. Um, but, it, and, but it can show up as problems in people's sex lives, and that's certainly what I've seen uh, in my practice. Describe your psychotherapy practice for us and what psychological methods are you employing in this book? Yeah, so um, I've been informed by many different uh, psychotherapeutic approaches. As as, uh, you may know, there are well over 450 different types of psychotherapy uh, models. And uh, uh, what I've mostly... Uh, pivoted my practice towards is really a style, uh, and and I call it the carefrontational style. So when people come to see me, they're hiring me primarily because they want me to be an advocate for their relationship. They're really concerned about the vulnerability of their relationship, and and so when they hire me, I'm 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 going to speak on behalf of that relationship. I'm going to be a champion uh, uh, for them. And uh, uh, so I euphemistically say, you know, I'm straight to the point, no beating around the bush and occasional karate chop to the throat, if that's what's needed in order to get their attention about what is in the best interest of their relationship. And so I'm, I, I endeavor to uh, never be on any individual side, but only on the side of the relationship. Now, kind of the, the academic uh, part of that answer is uh, the influences of radically open dialectical behavior therapy, um, rational emotive behavior therapy, as well as um, Buddhist uh, contemplative psychology are, are all elements that um, have impacted my work and, and are re- reflected in the book Making Nice with Naughty, as well as uh, other secular uh, writers such as uh, Byron Katie and um, Eckhart Tolle. I, I use some of that uh, information to help people get a clear understanding of how their mind works and then to kind of life hack their mind, if you will, uh, as they move into uh, pursuing making nice with Nadi. And why is the OC temperament so integral to your research? It is a it is the common theme uh, that I see among clients who come in to uh, uh, my practice. So that OC or the overcontrolled temperament. Um, again, you know these these. Yeah, I, I talk about it as 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 if I'm not one of them. But a common feature of the overcontrolled people is that uh, we get a lot of positive feedback from the world. Uh, the world tells us that we're accomplished, that we're we're hardworking, that we're dedicated, uh, and so the world gives us a lot of 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 great feedback. And then there can be this psychological um, uh, distress, really, that that their private lives don't match this public persona. Uh, In fact, many OC people will go to great lengths to uh, hide 
their inner distress or, or anxiety or depression. In fact, if an anxious or depressed OC person's uh, out and about in public and someone asks them how they're doing, one of, one of their favorite F words is fine. Yeah, I'm doing fine. Um, that it, you know, people don't really show much vulnerability. Uh, OC people don't show much vulnerability, um, and so uh, the 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 goal I think uh, of the work is to uh, educate people about how this OC temperament shows up in their life, and and is causing problems for them. I just had a couple the other day where uh, uh, I explained to him uh, about the OC temperament. He's a physician and uh, uh, he was really locked into this, this uh, 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 experience of being seen that, that, wow, this really explains a lot uh, of why I have some difficulties in my interpersonal relationships. If I'm, if I'm uh, uh, criticizing or constantly uh, uh, un- uh, emotionally unavailable to my partner, etc. So uh, helping people to understand the OC temperament and its impact on this important part of their life is, is really important. And does your book have value in academia? You teach mental health courses in places like Northwestern University and elsewhere. Yeah, so the, my book is the first uh, public, uh, um, uh, not public, uh, the first book to use this this concept of the OC temperament that that was original uh, originated again out of the uh, uh, research of Thomas Lynch who is the um, developer of the radically open dialectical behavior therapy. So there are no um, books written for the popular press uh, on RODBT or the application of RODBT to any particular issue other than mine. And so uh, there's a, a, uh, a, lot of, a lot of the research in academia around the OC temperament and the use of RODBT has mostly focused on um, anorexia. Uh, as uh, uh, some of your listeners may know, anorexia is, is this um, uh, very rule-oriented, uh, restricted eating, um, this, this drive towards perfectionism. These are all exaggerated features of the OC temperament. And so most of the research has been focused on, on a condition such as um, uh, anorexia, as well as uh, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which should not be confused with obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, this OCPD, uh, again, is another exaggerated form of the OC temperament. And so we're seeing a little bit more research in, in that area. Um, but, you know, if we think about it, uh, uh, again, my focus on my book is about sex and intimacy, and that already is a very vulnerable topic and particularly vulnerable to OC people. And academicians 
tend to lean towards the over-controlled temperament. So uh, it's no surprise that uh, academia has yet to really grab on to studying the impact of the OC temperament on, on human sexuality. Did you do research in archives or with interviews? What was your research process like on this? Fortunately, uh, it's been my direct experience with my patients uh, over the past, um, I guess now um, in my eighth year as a sex therapist, uh, of seeing the, uh, of these patterns emerging and then using the frame of uh radically open dialectical behavior therapy to uh, understand the, the nature of the OC temperament. Um, and so the, the, the data are coming directly from my uh, patients. So are there social patterns that you're seeing in individuals who may benefit from the ideas in your book? And then from your personal experience, What's been the demographic age or personality type of people who are not enjoying sex? Yeah, so if I'm understanding your question, let me just kind of go back and share a pivotal moment in my work with patients that uh, certainly helped to clarify the thesis of the book. Uh, One of uh, one session, this is the, the height of the pandemic. And so this would have been around September of, of 2020. I had uh, doing telehealth as most uh, uh, therapists were at that time and was working with a couple who uh, had some young children. And, and as is often the case with a lot of couples with young children, there's this decline in interest in sex uh, by one or both partners. And, uh, uh, I had this kind of light bulb moment that I bet I could um, uh, predict the quality of a couple's sex life by just asking one question. Are you a be careful parent or are you a have fun parent? In other words, when your child's about to take a risk on the playground, is your impulse to to yell, be careful, be careful, uh, or is your impulse to encourage the exploration and, and the adventure through a have fun? Uh, and what I found is that the be careful parents tended to report sexual problems in their relationship. And the have fun parents were the ones who uh, were less likely uh, to report sexual problems. They may have had other problems, but um, uh, their sex life wasn't, wasn't it. And so uh, when I think of this kind of social patterns, you know, it's, it's really these uh, uh, people who are, uh, again, risk averse, threat sensitive, rejection sensitive, um, they have strong feelings about how the world should be, must be, and has to be. In fact, if if the world doesn't comport to what their expectations are, one of their other favorite F words is frustrating. Uh, so they'll often say, this is frustrating, or I, I, I'm frustrated. And um, uh, and so that, that can impede their connections with others. You know, a lot of OCs 
what they fear most is uncertainty. So they're, they tend to plan, they tend to be very future oriented, and as a consequence, tend to lean towards uh, uh, more anxiety than others. Uh, and so uh, that also kind of points to the demographics uh, of this uh, population, uh, particularly the personality type that is being uh, over-controlled. Uh, I should mention that you know the over-controlled temperament uh, is is like any other temperament. You know, be it introversion, extroversion. You know, temperaments are n- neither good nor bad, right nor wrong, but are just stable ways of showing up in the world. And so, the over-controlled temperament is, uh, uh, you know, it's just a style of of being in the world. And of course, that is the the. The, the focus of the of the book um, that de- demographic age is uh, is is mostly go- going to be of interest to uh, you know, people in their mid twenties and older who are who are uh, either in relationships or had had troubled relationships uh, where sexual issues were a problem um, and and you know sexual issues can include things like premature uh, or ejaculation or also known as rapid ejaculation, delayed ejaculation, uh, erectile uh, dysfunction, or what I euphemistically call erectile disappointment uh, in that you know, these uh, people don't have difficulty getting an erection uh, when they're by themselves. They may just struggle with it with partners. Um, and so uh, we can uh, uh, look beyond the curtain and see that for a lot of people uh, that this book is written for have some form of what's called sexual perfectionism. And that is, they have this strong belief that uh, uh, they have to be sexually perfect or their partner has to be sexually perfect or they think their partner thinks they have to be sexually perfect. And then the last form of sexual perfectionism is this um belief that society expects me to be sexually perfect. So it kind of gives you a flavor of the personality type and demographic age uh, who um, would be most interested. And how are men and women expressing themselves differently? Is gender a factor here? Uh, it certainly is. Um, of course, gender doesn't exist in isolation. Gender is certainly highly influenced by cultural factors as well. And so we can look at things like uh, sexual perfectionism, as I just described, this, this uh, uh, uh pressure to be sexually perfect by society can, can particularly be uh, impactful to, to uh, women. Um, uh, uh, it certainly can impact men too, but in, in um, different ways. Uh, for example, I find that men are some of the least likely to do any reading about uh, human sexuality um, and I think that there's this general uh, assumption that men in particular should know everything there is to know about sex right out of the gate. Um, and therefore, there's a, uh, almost this, um, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of stereotype threat, uh, but uh, this, uh, 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 I don't want to admit that I don't know something. Um, and so, um uh, I think that that impacts uh, uh, men differently. Um, you know, for example, a lot of 
men develop uh, uh, phobic reactions or anxiety disorders after not getting an erection when they thought that they should get one. And so they then start to anticipate sexual problems in the future, which then uh, activates adrenaline in the body. And of course, adrenaline uh, is a vasal um, constrictor and, and impedes erectile functioning. And so the very fear response makes it more likely that they'll have erectile problems. Um, so I do see it, I do see it differently. Uh, uh, but what's uh, common among uh, men and women, particularly who are over-controlled, is uh, those features that I described earlier. What parts of your sex therapy go beyond the mental and focus on the physical body? I see. I see. Yeah. So uh, that's a great question. Um, if let's say someone comes in who uh, has vaginal pain during penetrative sex, and uh, uh, of course I'm I'm a sex therapist who uh, is licensed to work with the mind, so I don't touch my patients. Um, uh, at the same time. Uh, there are important interventions that might include touch. So I will refer patients with uh, uh, vaginal pain during penetration to a pelvic floor specialist uh, who's a physical therapist who has specialized training and, uh, and collaborate with them uh, to help to reduce the discomfort that one might experience um, during sex. If someone is um, uh, overweight and is having erectile difficulties, then certainly uh, uh, helping them in, in a diet and exercise regimen that will uh, uh, improve their overall health can certainly improve um, erectile functioning as well. Um, same is true for rapid ejaculation. You know, the more cardiovascular health you have, the less likely or, or it's, it, you can you can um, increase your one's stamina through increasing one's cardiovascular health. Uh, yoga is a, a, a similar uh, intervention that that helps to quiet the mind through physical postures. And uh, one key piece of that, of course, is is deep breathing, being very attuned to one's breath, and uh, uh, coming into the present moment. Um, uh, through physical uh, uh, stretches and, and what have you. And all of that are, are different ways of, of recentering the mind and the body. And, uh, you, and uh, as you're kind of alluding to, um, there, what I say about sex is sex is like honey. Uh, no matter how much you read about honey, you do research on honey, you, you look under the microscope at honey, um, you can do dissertations on honey, but you'll never know what honey tastes like until you taste it. And so there are certainly um, uh, instances where where having the experience is, is way more important than sitting on my couch and, and talking with me. Why perfectionism? Is perfectionism what is preventing people from opening up or is it something else? Well, perfectionism is a solution to a fear uh, or discomfort around vulnerability. So perfectionism is, is think about it as a, a, a solution 
for what uh, people believe is is necessary to avoid rejection. And so people who lean towards perfectionism believe that I have to be perfect so that I can be acceptable. Uh, and and uh, uh, that, that, of course, is, is an impossible uh, uh, goal and, and can really distance people from others. Uh, there's a concept in social psychology called the pratfall effect, uh, which uh, simply means that that our imperfections are precisely what make us more endearing to others. Uh, but that's hard for people to believe. They think, oh, if I'm perfect, then why would people reject me? When in fact, uh, our perfectionism, if we strive for it, uh, gives the impression to others that we're somewhat untouchable and and. Uh, when you're when you're more interested in being perfect, you're less interested in actually having an authentic connection with with others, and and that sense that you know people can sense that and and uh, inadvertently then distance themselves from you. And do you include fetishes in your book? And if so, what are some of the kinks that you mention? Uh, that's a great question. Um, it's, it's not a, it's not a particular, um, uh, it's not a major topic in the book in part, you know, these are fetishes for a lot of people can feel, uh, um, too on the margins, um, particularly for over-controlled people. That isn't to say, however, that over-controlled people do not engage in fetishes. In fact, many of them do, um, they do so with, with uh, uh, great privacy and secrecy around their fetishes. Um, they may uh, experience um, uh, shame and embarrassment around their fetishes, uh, even though uh, most people experience some particular sexual interest that may be considered out of the norm. Uh, oh, what we do know about uh, uh kink and and I do talk about BDSM in the book now that I'm recalling um, it, it, these are, are ways of being playful um, these are ways of, of kind of making nice with naughty uh, uh, befriending naughty if you will um, and and in in having mystery uh, in integrated into one's um, sexual experience and you know the reality is we are all sexual beings 24 7 so we're never not sexual beings but i think a lot of people have uh been uh made to feel uh uh, quite self-conscious about their their uh, sexual expression uh and uh uh therefore any of these kinds of behaviors then get shuddered uh, uh, away uh, rather than celebrated. And certainly, uh, you know, anything that two consenting adults or, or more are doing together that uh, aren't violating the rights of others um, and that is uh, uh, mutually uh, beneficial and pleasurable, uh, you know, as they say in the sex therapy field, don't yuck someone else's yum. And what about the metaphorical ego tug of war that you write about? 
What are some methods to win that tug of war? Well, the, the, the ego, as I explained in the book, is not the ego that Freud talked about. Uh, the ego that I'm referring to is more of the ego that uh, the Buddhists uh, uh, describe, which is that inner voice, that, that narrator of your life, um, the, the, uh, all of the conditioned, what we call conditioned parts of, of who you are or your domestication, um, you know, you've, you, you, me, the listeners, we've all been domesticated by um, our families, uh, by society, uh, and, and that influences this inner voice. And uh, often that inner voice can, can uh, uh, make you uh, or, or, or persuade you to do things, particularly out of anxiety. Uh, and so a big part of the work that I do is to help people to understand their own mind, their own ego, uh, so that they don't have to take it uh, so seriously. And so uh, uh, as you, you, you know, if you've ever played tug of war, uh, one of the ways to uh, release the tension is to let go of, of the rope. And so in essence, the, the metaphorical tug of war, letting go of the ego, is to be a better observer of the mind rather than a participant in the workings of the mind. Um, so I can, I can observe my own mind chatter. I don't uh, believe or I don't uh, see myself as the mind chatter. And once you have that separation that you realize, oh, yeah, I'm no longer this voice in my head, but I am the observer of that voice, then uh, uh, it's less uh, persuasive, it's less seductive. And, and uh, then you can be um, uh, uh, directing your behavior towards that, those things that better reflect your values. And for people on the LGBTQ spectrum, are there different strategies that you employ? You know, uh, as someone who identifies as um, queer, I, uh, I, you know, it just is uh, uh, refreshing, to be honest, how common these issues that I see in my office are, uh, are reflective among all, all uh, peoples uh, in relationships, that these are just common uh, issues. Now, of course, there are, uh, I think as time go- has gone by over the past uh, 10 years or so, you know, particularly before um, marriage equality, I think there was a lot more kind of disparity between LGBT uh, folk and and. Uh, heterosexual people, but I think, you know, the lines are becoming more and more blurred. Um, and so I'm, I'm sensitive, of course, to the, uh, the various oppressions that people within the, the LGBT community experience that, uh, you know, people who live heterosexual lives uh, may not experience and, and tie that into my work. Um, but uh, I want to underscore that I think there's a lot more similarities than there are differences. 
do you recommend people write down their improvements and losses, say, like in a notebook? Can you say more about what you're referring to? Well, from your practice and people that come to visit you, would you recommend that they record some of their feelings or sexual intimacy experiences to maybe learn more about themselves in a notebook or journal? Yeah, you know, journaling is a is an excellent way of uh, of memorializing, if you will, the 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 workings of the mind, uh, and so in, in many ways you can uh, find insight through. Uh, reflections. Um, what I would uh, caution anyone, particularly people who are over-controlled, is to be be um, uh, on guard for any part of you that feels like, oh, I have to do something, I should do something, I must do something, because these are just more rules. Uh, and so if someone finds it beneficial to journal and to uh, uh, write down um, their experiences, then ultimately that's what matters uh, most. You know, as a sex therapist or as a therapist in general, I don't give a lot of homework. Uh, 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 kind of, I don't prescribe a lot of homework uh, in part because, uh, again, the 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 type of client that I'm seeing. Uh, with the over-controlled temperament, they're the ones that are that are going to hyper-focus on the details of the assignment. They're going to be concerned about doing the assignment correctly. Uh, they don't want to disappoint. Uh, and so that's just is more of the same uh, dynamics that are bringing them into the practice. I'm much more interested in them doing things spontaneously, being playful, playful, uh, uh, um, leaning into anxiety, discovering new parts of themselves uh, in, in kind of more unconventional ways. Why are there risks inherent in monogamy? Are you recommending other options? Uh, those are great questions. Um, uh, one of the, the major risks of monogamy, and let me just say, you know, monogamy um, kind of culturally is said to be the gold standard of relationshiping, and it's a it's a fine uh, institution. Uh, uh, but because we elevate it culturally to such a high level, there isn't discussion about the inherent risk associated with it. And and one of the major inherent risks associated with monogamy is the decrease of desire over time. And so empirically, we know that on average a couple in a long-term monogamous relationship experiences a reduction in lusting after each other about 8% per year. And liking their partner declines on average 4% per year. And, and so we don't, that those things aren't talked about, right? The assumption is, hey, monogamy is a way to, to keep the flames of desire alive um, when in fact uh, the research doesn't, um, support that monogamy as an institution itself is sufficient for for maintaining it, and so I uh, 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 re- spend some time at length uh, with my couples uh, around this uh, uh, concept of monogamy and helping them to 
to um, kind of be more explicit and conscious of the implications of having chosen monogamy as their governing institution for their relationship. Uh, as, as to whether I recommend other options, I don't uh, have a particular um, leaning towards one option or another. All the options have a set of benefits and, and risks associated with them. And, you know, everybody has to decide which, which set of pros and cons they're willing to live with. Are intimacy and love the same as sex? You know, that's a, that's a wonderful question. Of course, you know, I think poets and artists and, and musicians, uh, uh, as well as academicians have been trying to define those terms uh, for millennia. Um, you know, for me, as I describe in my book, uh, intimacy is uh, a low risk, I'm sorry, high risk, high anxiety, low predictability, newness, and novelty. Um, and, and, and I um, uh, contrast that with closeness. Um, even though most people use closeness and intimacy interchangeably, they are different. So again, intimacy is high risk, high anxiety, low predictability, newness, novelty. Closeness is low risk, low anxiety, high predictability, comfort, familiarity, right? Uh, and so uh, uh, what happens for a lot of the people that I see, their relationship has become over-concentrated uh, with closeness at the expense of intimacy, and that's an impediment to um, desire and, and uh, uh, passion, etc. Now, love, love, uh, uh, to be, give a little history, comes from the old English word leaf. L-I-E-F, which uh, eventually trans, uh, became the word leave, as in I give you leave, and then leave turned into love. And this, So if we look at the essence of love, love is about acceptance. So I accept you as you want to be. Um, where a lot of couples get into trouble is they want to love the, the other person uh, with an agenda which is, I want you to be as I want you to be. But real love is, I want you to be as you want you to be. Or in other words, I want to accept you as you are. And so real love to me is, is embodies acceptance. Um, uh, and that is, a, uh, that is hard. That's hard to do. We all want to be loved unconditionally without much reflection on how difficult it is to love others uncondi- unconditionally. Um, and so they are certainly not uh, the same as sex. Uh, sex is uh, uh, really an activity between people that can uh, uh, be devoid of either one of those things, intimacy and love. So you have different books or sorry, let's redo that. You have different exercises for couples that are inside of your book. Can you recommend some of those exercises for the audience who is listening to maybe do? Can you explain one? Yes. Yeah, so one of those is um, uh, looking at your your uh, values. Um, 
values are are kind of the light posts uh, that um, are not light posts, lighthouses that uh, help to guide your behavior. And so, uh, if if a couple values um, a physical affection, for example, or they value having a conversation uh, with each other. Uh, but their behaviors aren't consistent, meaning they're not showing up in a way that would uh, provide the evidence that those values are important, then the couple is encouraged to uh, uh, write out those values. There's an exercise in there about identifying what those values are. And then uh, 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 identifying which behaviors that they would be doing that would reflect those values. And uh, uh, we we call those behaviors the turning toward moves. Um, So a turning away move would be kind of the silent treatment. I doubt that anybody would write that their values are to be emotionally avoidant. Um, And so, but a lot of people find that when they're in conflict, they engage in the silent treatment. And so uh, uh, the exercise is to help Couples get really clear about what's important to them uh, uh, relative to their uh, marriage and then choose behaviors that are consistent uh, with what's important. What are the most common reasons that people come to see you at your practice and would you ever turn someone away? Uh, As I mentioned earlier, the most common reasons that people come to see me are they're having sexual issues or they're having marital issues. My, my practice is really uh, almost uh, exclusively focused on those two main presenting problems. Um, and so uh, uh, whether I would uh, turn uh, someone away, uh, it's rare that I would do that. Um, I may divert them to uh, other um uh, services. So, for example, I'm also a, uh, a what's called a discernment counselor, and uh, discernment counseling is a type of uh, 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 conversation between people who are on who uh, may be on the brink of divorce, and so. Uh, uh, and they're trying to figure out kind of which path to take. They're ambivalent uh, about divorce and they want clarity or certainty. Well, if a couple comes in saying that they want couples therapy, uh, when in fact they're quite ambivalent about remaining married, then couples therapy is just not for them. Couples therapy is is designed specifically for people who are um, both leaning into the marriage, that they're really invested in and uh, owning their own contributions to the problems and working on themselves relative, relative to uh, the, the relationship and wanting to improve the relationship. Uh, and so if a, if a couple is ambivalent about that, then I'm not going to uh, offer them couples therapy, but rather redirect them uh, to a different service called discernment counseling. Also, I would say, you know, because of my style as being, again, uh, direct uh, to the point, an advocate for the relationship, if someone uh, has more of a poor me, kind of a victim consciousness um, 
who wants to just blame their partner for all of the problems in their relationship, they're just not going to resonate with me. And so um, I will uh, help them uh, move to maybe another provider, either within the practice or in the community, who may be the more touchy-feely, uh, 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 how do you feel about that kind of therapist that I'm certainly not. What is rational emotive behavior therapy or REBT? So rational emotive behavior therapy was uh, developed by a psychologist, Albert Ellis, uh, in the 40s and 50s, and, uh, 1940s and 50s. And um, he uh, initially trained as a psychoanalyst, as, as did most uh, mental health people uh, in that era. Uh, but he found that um, it just wasn't effective um, and he uh, uh, took uh, application, if you will, from the uh, uh, ancient philosophers, namely the, the Stoics, who uh, 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 understood you know, 2,000 plus years ago that um, most of the problems that we experience aren't from the actual stressing, distressing events in our lives, but rather from how we evaluate those events. Um, and so, uh, for example, if one's driving down the road, let's say someone come, uh, uh, goes to a therapist because they have road rage and they say, I get road rage because people cut out, cut, uh, in front of me. And, uh, and that makes me so angry when people cut in front of me. Well, if we were to di uh, diagram what really happens, what, what we see is, isn't that they're upset because someone cut in front of them, but rather they're upset because of the thoughts that they have about people cutting in front of them. You know, they, their, their mind chatter or their ego will say things like, uh, that isn't right, that isn't fair, they should get into trouble, they should be punished, all of this kind of uh, inner dialogue that occurs. And those thoughts fuel the, the rage. It isn't the, the, the actual event. And how do we know that? Because if we had 100 people who had someone cut in front of them, we wouldn't get universal responses from all 100 people, that there's some other factor at play and what our uh, rational emotive behavior therapy uh, uh, essentially is getting at is that how you view the experience is either going to work for you or not work for you. It's either going to be adaptive or maladaptive. And when people experience maladaptive reactions, uh, and that that being defined as they're not living in consistent, you're not living consistently with their values, then. Um, uh, we want to offer alternative ways of, of thinking that are much more adaptive. And so rational emotive behavior therapy falls under that, that umbrella of what's called cognitive behavior therapy uh, that takes a look at uh, what thoughts are, are wreaking havoc in your lives. Do you have any thoughts or experiences on risk versus reward when it comes to intimacy? Well, uh, namely the risk, right? You know, again, as over-controlled people, uh, 
they tend to be very risk adverse, uh, in part because they want absolute certainty of the outcome of their actions. Um, and uh, uh, that can be much more uh, persuasive than um, reward. In fact, over-controlled people tend to have low reward sensitivity. In other words, they're not all that motivated uh, uh, for, uh, uh, for rewards. And, you know, for example, sex feels good. Uh, you would think that people would want to have more sex. But what we find is that over-controlled people um, are, aren't persuaded or motivated to have more sex just because it feels good. Uh, they, they are uh, easily uh, uh, distracted, if you will, by um, uh, stressors that might be you know, out there. You know, is there uh, uh, let's say one is, is um, uh, having sex in a hotel room and, and uh, they hear people walking down the hall. That, you know, the over-controlled people, person may, may not want to have sex because they are um, afraid of getting caught. Right. Or I remember to just to be personal, one time I was at a sex therapy conference and and one of uh, the sex therapy attendees and I, you know, uh, uh, decided we were going to go back to her hotel room. And, and she's like, uh, would you like to have you know, let's let's have sex on the balcony. And, uh, and I was like, um, uh, you know, I, I was I was willing. And so she opened up the the. Uh, uh, curtains and um, it was lit like the 4th of July. And I was like, you know, that's not going to happen. <laughs> right. So I'm not, uh, I'm not willing to take that kind of risk, even, even if the reward would have been, um, would have been uh, great. Uh, and so uh, for a lot of people, uh, again, that, that uh, OCs tend to be risk averse, but it is actually through our pursuing of risks that um, uh, we uh, experience the aliveness that life has to offer. But for a lot of people, that just is, uh, can be too much for them to uh, accommodate in their life. And so they, they, they back away from risk. Do you have anything to say about orgasms and climaxes? Well, you know, for a lot of people, what happens is that uh, orgasms and climaxes become goals um, rather than um, uh, effects of, of arousability. And so when an orgasm becomes the, the goal, uh, as you can imagine, with any time that there's this performance mentality around sex, then one is introducing the possibility of failure. And so uh, we call that at orgasmic centric or performance-based sex. Uh, and uh, uh, that, that certainly can be uh, a common issue that's presented. I would also add that um, uh, a lot of over-controlled people will... Uh, evaluate their own worth as a sexual partner by whether their their partner experiences an orgasm. And so if their partner doesn't experience an orgasm, then they interpret that as, oh, that, there's evidence that that person's not into me or I'm not adequate. And, and of course, that's more performance-based um, view of sex. Pleasure-based view of sex is 
we're going to, I'm going to focus on what feels good and do what feels good without this um, requirement or expectation that there's some end goal that we're moving toward. Uh, and, and when, when, a, when a pleasure-based view of sex is uh, adopted, then uh, possibilities become quite endless. How can people avoid victimhood and being the target of blame when it be, when it comes to sexual violence? Well, certainly people are victimized. Um, and what, in my book, I talk about this idea of the, the uh, victimhood temperament. And uh, uh, what I'm getting at is that for a lot of people, they will... Um, uh, use their historical experience, their, their um, sexual violence history as a rationale for not engaging uh, with their partner. And uh, even if they had no sexual issues at the beginning of their relationship, uh, despite that happening after their uh, sexual violence. Uh, and so one of the things that... Um, I uh, help people is I, I well, point billing, ask them who benefits from you continuing to uh, deprive yourself of the pleasure uh, of intimacy, sexual intimacy with your partner? Who, who, who benefits from that? And typically the person will say no one benefits. And I'll say, well, that's not true. It's not true that no one benefits. And, uh, and then I offer to them that every perpetrator against them is made right every time that they deny themselves uh, a sexual experience in the present. Uh, That in other words, uh, they get to make those perpetrators wrong by reclaiming what is, um, dare I say, their divine inheritance, which is to, to enjoy their bodies and to enjoy the bodies of their partner uh, for this pleasure-based experience. And so reclaiming their sexuality uh, is, an, is an essential part of um, avoiding victimhood. <laughs> if you were to suggest another form of therapy outside of your sexual healing, what would you recommend? Do you know about or do you ever prescribe mindfulness meditation or anything? Yeah, mindfulness is a, uh, I didn't mention this earlier about the psychotherapy um, approaches, but RODBT has a core core element of mindfulness is assigned to it, as well as um, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is another approach that has influenced my work um, uh, tremendously. And, and, you know, of course, mindfulness doesn't necessarily mean sitting on the cushion and meditating. Mindfulness is really just this this concentrated attention on the here uh, and now moment, uh, 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 where where it, there's a great deal of acceptance that one has to the to the present moment, and and. Uh, as you can imagine, for a lot of people who tend to project into the future a lot, uh, as OCs often do, uh, mindfulness practices are, are uh, hugely beneficial to come back into the present moment. Uh, and sometimes I'll instigate this with a question um, such as, uh, what is actually wrong in this moment? 
um, and uh, uh, look around. You're in my office, or you're at, you know, if you're if they're at home, and you're just just look around. Take on the five senses. What is actually wrong in this moment? Not in five seconds from now, ten minutes from now, but in this moment. And you know, most people come to the realization that oh, uh, there's nothing wrong in this moment. What is acceptance and commitment therapy and how can people reorient their goals? Yeah. uh, uh, So Stephen Hayes uh, is the developer of acceptance and commitment therapy. And it's another form of the cognitive behavior therapy um, umbrella that I mentioned earlier. And um, what I love about it is that traditional CBT is about arguing with your mind chatter. Um, and acceptance and commitment therapy is uh, less about the arguing with it, but just recognizing that we have a mind, uh, it has a job, uh, and its job is to produce thought. But we don't have to buy every thought that the mind produces. We don't have to be compulsive buyers. Uh, and so uh, uh, getting in alignment with reality is a big part of acceptance and commitment therapy. The commitment piece is what I was referring to earlier, and that is to identify your values and be committed toward um, actions that reflect those values. And and goals, uh, goals are the things that uh, you pursue that you have total control over. Um, and so uh, a goal uh, uh, is is one that doesn't require anyone else's participation. You have total control over a goal. Everything else might be an outcome, but goals are 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 uh, totally within your control. So uh, saying uh, I have a goal to have a publisher uh, pick up my book, that is not a goal. That might be an outcome, but a, a goal would be to send one's book to fifteen. Uh, agents, you know, that's something that the person has total control over. And are you holding any seminars, meet and greets in the future? Anything for people who would like to contact you in person or get to meet you or know you? Uh, right now, the uh, I have conferences coming up um, that I will be attending and speaking at, and that includes the North Carolina Sexual Health Conference, uh, which will be in May, uh, and then um, the American Association for Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists Conference, uh, which is in June, um, and uh, the Radically Open Dialectical Behavior Therapy Conference, which is also in June. Uh, that being said, people are always free to reach out to me at uh, drtommurray.com uh, and uh, join my uh, email list or send me an email um, uh, through that website. Uh, I I'll welcome uh, people to, to reach out to me and uh, uh, you know, I tend to be very responsive. And any final thoughts about making nice with Naughty? Well, just uh, uh, it's a real delight to be with you today and to um, uh, provide your listeners with a, an, uh, an overlook of, of making nice with Naughty. I hope that if any of them are rec- uh, see themselves in the, the subtitle of rule-following, organized, perfectionist, practical, and color-within-the-line types, who also are yearning to... Um, experience more fulfilling and meaningful sex life through making nice with naughty, then uh, I hope they'll uh, pick up the book. 
New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore, thank Dr. Thomas L. Murray Jr. for a podcast episode about his newest book, Making Nice with Naughty, an intimacy guide for the rule-following, organized, perfectionist, practical, and color-within-the-line types. To hear more interviews about topics you enjoy, subscribe or visit the NBN website.